Welcome to Have You Heard, an IDF podcast. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation, a nonprofit organization that improves the diagnosis, treatment, and quality of life of people affected by primary immunodeficiency. People living with PI are the zebras of the medical world, and the IDF community is one big zebra herd. In today's episode, we will be discussing pain management from infusions to everyday life. Learning how to manage pain is very beneficial, especially for those living with primary immunodeficiency who may have acute or chronic pain. All right, let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode, Pain Management, from Infusions to Everyday Life. I'm your host, John Boyle. Many people living with primary immunodeficiency rely on injectable medical therapies, such as immunoglobulin replacement therapy, or IG, to maintain healthy lives. However, this life-saving treatment is generally administered either intravenously or subcutaneously every week, two weeks, three weeks, or four weeks. Receiving infusions like IVIG or SCIG can be frightening to those who are afraid of needles and can challenge anyone who has to receive multiple needle sticks. But beyond the needle pain, people with PI may also be living with chronic pain, causing issues such as arthritis, inflammation, or muscle aches. Pain management is crucial and necessary to help those suffering from daily pain. To discuss pain management further, we have Dr. Amy Baxter here with us today. Dr. Baxter is the CEO and founder of Pain Care Labs and the inventor of the physiological pain blocker product, Buzzy. After many years of clinical practice in both pediatric emergency medicine and pain management, as well as working in pain research, Dr. Baxter moved on to pursue her business and to develop additional products for pain management. Dr. Baxter has identified products to effectively inhibit pain, improve muscle soreness, blood flow, recovery, and more in order to give people power over pain. Welcome, Dr. Baxter. We are so glad to have you with us here today. John, it is a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. I was talking to someone just yesterday who was like, oh my gosh, John Boyle. So you're famous. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm podcast famous, I guess, and uh, and we know what that counts for. Not a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> but uh, uh, Dr. Baxter, it really is lovely to uh, be talking with you today. Now, let's start our time here together by talking about your inspiration to create a tool that helps to block pain. What led you to create Buzzy and some of the other products that uh, you and Pain Care Labs have uh, worked on over time? Sure. Well, it started as a pediatrician when I became annoyed at my colleagues who were very stoic about their patients' pain. I realized that with all the topical anesthetics and the ways in the emergency department that we could block pain, there was only a fraction of doctors who were using these on a regular basis. So our mission at Pain Care Labs is to eliminate unnecessary pain, and that really was how I got started, was trying to figure out how to change behavior so that doctors could block pain when it was easy or obvious on how to do it. It started with topical anesthetics, and then when I realized for my son's vaccines that just because I'd put a topical anesthetic on didn't mean that the nurse was going to aim the jab where the area was blanched, that's when I started getting interested in making pain devices that would empower patients and parents that didn't require the medical community to be involved. 
Well, uh, necessity being the mother of invention and you being a mother necessitating invention there, that that is kind of an unusual path to take for some. What, you know, had you had any experience with taking an idea like that from concept to uh, to a product in the past? I saw what you did there with that mother of invention thing. That was really cute. I think that all mothers will do whatever it takes to make their kids' lives better. So I had always been a tinkerer, and I was really interested in, oh, wiring things up. I mean, switches are cool. Making little lights are cool. Having, I mean, classic basement inventor, putting things together, taking things apart, trying to put wires together. I was much more aspirational than good at it. Certainly when I was taking electronics and physics to get into medical school, I lost, I got lost really early. I never made it to the board level of being able to put copper wires together for circuitry, but I could wire things together and make them turn on without shocking myself. So when I discovered that my son needed something. I was like, all right, well, let's try to replicate the feeling of running water. So as a doctor, I knew if you bump your elbow and rub it or you bang your hand with a hammer and shake it, that's called gate control. What's happening is you're stimulating the position sense nerves and they override the pain nerves. So I was trying at first to do this with running water, which was very messy and didn't work. And I tried taking those little balloons that you fold into funny animals Turns out it's a much easier to make a funny animal dog if it's filled with air, not water. So for your listeners, a little helpful tip there. But because I had been a tinkerer with electronic stuff, I came home from the hospital one morning after an overnight shift. My hands were on the steering wheel. Our tires were unbalanced because I hadn't had time to go deal with that. And the vibration that it set up in my hands caused my hands to be numb when I went inside the house. So I found a little mechanical vibration handheld massager, and that was the way that I was able to block the sensation of pain on my kids. It didn't work as well with just vibration when my husband added the frozen peas that his experience in the Boy Scouts had suggested to him. That was really when those two sensations together were able to block out pain. The next two, three years, I was taking things apart. My kids and I were collecting people's used cell phones, trying to figure out what in them we could put together with a little soldering iron and a little circuitry to make that sensation even more effective at blocking out pain. Well, what you've talked about there is, again, device-based approaches uh, to, again, this general concept of pain. But can you talk a little bit about the kind of current or maybe not too recent past approaches to pain management in terms of, if you will, the the sort of weighting uh, between, let's say, pharmacological pain medicine versus devices or other uh, things that may be in the landscape that are used to mitigate, reduce, or eliminate pain. Because again, you know, most people are not dealing with their soldering irons and, and whatnot. You know, they're just saying, hey, let me take my Advil or let me, you know, talk to my doctor about something stronger. Uh, and just understanding a little bit more about what is out there for the general use of pain management and the general world of that, before we dive deeper into a few specific ones, would be interesting. 
Oh, wow. And I love talking about this because I have changed my opinion so dramatically in the last five years. And there's so much new research in the last five years that has complemented this. When you're in medical school, you get into medical school in part by being really good at multiple choice tests. You know, there's one question, there's one right answer. That really is the pharmacologic approach to medicine. It is, here is the disease process, there is one drug that we're gonna use. Now, maybe it's, we'll try this immunoglobulin, we'll try this drug, and then if that doesn't work, we go to two or three or four down the list. But it really is a one problem, one answer type paradigm. What I have learned is that um, I left medicine about four years ago. Someone used my buzzy device to not take opioids after a knee replacement surgery because he was in opioid recovery. And that was impressive enough to me and profound enough for me to say, I think I need to spend more time really concentrating on the problem of pain and the problem of opioid addiction. What I have learned since leaving medicine is that we really are suborned in so many ways in medical school and in our society to use this one-to-one -one paradigm of one drug, one problem. In reality, pain is how, how safe your brain thinks it is. It's not just what's happening peripherally. It's your interpretation of what's happening. And it's the processing in the thalamus of the pain signals that are coming in from your spine. It's the processing in your spine of all of the different sensations that are coming in, pain and motion and pressure and stretching and position sense. So, so there's just all of this really complicated interplay between what the body is experiencing. And so the brain's job is to interpret whether the body is at risk. Pain is the brain's opinion of how safe you are. If you can give patients a feeling of control and power, it lowers pain. If you can change the meaning of what the pain is, it changes pain. If you are, for example, having a, a power play with your 10-year-old buddy and your 10-to, and you're giving yourself each other burns, like so you, you take the hand and you twist it back and forth and you're burning it. So the amount of pain is related to whether or not you want to win and not show any wincing and then give your friend back the, the same thing double. So the meaning of pain really changes your response to pain. So this whole concept of, you know, am I safe? What's the purpose of this pain? How do I want to be seen as I respond to this pain? All of that is important as we talk about dealing with chronic pain and dealing with pain from needles or infusions in particular. Well, thank you uh, for all that. We, we just covered uh, major pain theory uh, pieces there, but you, you started to get a little uh, specific there So uh, at the end. And so I'd like to delve deeper. You talked about chronic pain, and then you talked about let's say more acute or uh, temporary pain, such as by the injection of a needle or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about between your research and again, your work as a clinician, more about those two sides of the same pain coin? Uh, you know, what, what is similar about them in terms of the management of chronic pain or the management of a more temporary pain, uh, rug burn or, or otherwise? What are some of the things that you and doctors, either who deal with pain management or just seeing a patient and that's not their primary piece, have to think about? Sure. So I think that the coin analogy you just used is a really great one, because even if one side of the coin says chronic and one side says acute, the 
the way to approach pain is the same for both of them. The construct that I like to use is the pain, fear, focus construct. So there is the physical experience of what is happening. There is the nerve endings and what is impacting them, whether it's inflammation, whether it's a needle or whether it is a pressure or whether it's a joint that is rubbing against itself and causing pain. Then there is whether or not that signal is something that causes anxiety. Now, it doesn't have to just be the fear of I'm about to get poked. It can also be the dread of knowing that there's going to be something uncomfortable that's coming in two or three days. There's a real difference in the literature between anxiety, which is that that dread, that antecedent thing, even though there's not an immediate source of danger, and then fear, which is a rational protective response when you're about to have something painful happen. 92% of patients with diabetes have an increased fear response. Pupils dilate, heart rate goes up, heart rate variability changes before they self-inject every time. The body doesn't change the way that it responds to a threat, but you can change the way your brain interprets it and what it means. So this pain, fear, and then focus so focus is a huge part of pain management, whether it's immediate distraction from something, uh, you're playing a game and you're running behind the house and you twist your ankle, but you just twist it a little bit and you're still running away from somebody and you want to hide before they find you. So you ignore that pain until you get to a place later, or maybe it's at night and then all of a sudden your ankle starts to hurt because you're paying attention to it. So distraction is a really important part of pain management in the acute setting. And what they're starting to find in chronic settings is that the treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, where the idea is you don't rate your pain on a one to 10. You don't constantly check in with your body to see how much pain it's in. Instead, what you do is you accept that you're going to have pain. You commit to lifestyle choices and to values that you have. And then the, the metric on which you judge how you're doing is how often you are doing the things that make a difference to you. How often are you able to go to school? How often are you able to lift your grandchild up? How often were you able to go out and garden? And what they find is that the outcomes on a traditional one to 10 pain scale are actually better at the end of six months on people on acceptance and commitment therapy than people who are on traditional pain medications. But I'd like to clarify something there just because, uh, well, I might say that there's some personal and family anecdotes about this. When you talk about the acceptance part of the uh, the ACT, was that the correct uh, mm -hmm. uh, acronym? acronym? Yeah. Great. Um, you know, to the issue of powering through or, you know, accepting your pain or toughening up or anything like that, uh, my understanding is, you know, if you have injured your back or your knee or something else like that, you know, if you do not get appropriate pain management, you know, that you can further at times, uh, you know, exacerbate a problem. You're not listening to your body. Can you talk a little bit about the acceptance, you know, clarifying maybe what the, the ACT is versus not listening to your body or not taking adequate uh, steps to make sure that, you know, you're not further injuring yourself? Sure. Well, there's a big difference between injury and chronic pain. So chronic pain comes from a number of different sources, some of which may be injury. But typically, what happens is that when you have a place on the body that has been in pain for a long time, you become 
an expert on that part of your body. Your brain, your thalamus actually enlarges so that it is more nuanced and more able to appreciate the subtle parts of the pain that is coming from that part of your body to the point where you can even have a place where the pain signals are triggered even if it's a, a non-dangerous touch, light touch. Um, so some people call this central sensitization ramp up. The idea is that you can have more pain from normal touches and even the wind can cause things to be painful. So that's the situation in which you actually do better if you force your brain to start paying attention to other parts of your body and other activities more. Now, the question, certainly when there's an acute injury, it's important to make sure you're not injuring the part of the body more by continuing to walk on it or twist it or whatever. So acute injury, not part of what we're talking about. Always get injuries that don't resolve evaluated and baby them and take care of them. But you don't need to go for a pill. You can just ride the pain out and not step on the place or whatever. Certainly, I mean, I'm a monster fan of ibuprofen. I think it's fabulous. If I don't take it most nights, then I don't sleep as well and sleep is medicine. But the, the actual part of pain management is such a multimodal, even with acute pain, it's such a multimodal thing. One thing we're working on now using the, the VibraCool, which is basically a big version of Buzzy in a compression cup with ice, but looking at it for post-surgical opioid sparing. What this means is that when you get a surgery, say for example, um, wisdom teeth removed, turns out that opioids or Tylenol number three or Percocet don't do as well for that as ibuprofen. And even furthermore, if you use cold or vibration, then you don't need to go for a pill at all. So with post-surgical opioid sparing, the idea is that really there is very little demonstrated need to have opioids at home after a surgery. There are very few surgeries, maybe spinal fusion, but there are very few surgeries, even gallbladder, even ACL, where people need to take opioids. So having a physical solution, having distraction, having a plan so you feel empowered, having other things that you can take like supplements that can decrease the perception of pain. Magnesium is a wonderful, additional anti-inflammatory. It's a neuro anti-inflammatory. It's a smooth muscle relaxer. It's a general anti-inflammatory. And it's also something called an NMDA blocker, which means that if you are taking opioids, you end up needing to take more and more to get the same effect. If you're taking magnesium, it stops that more and more ramp up thing. So I've given you a ton to unpack, but uh, to summarize, if you have an acute injury, get it checked out. Don't walk on it because you could make it worse, particularly if it's broken. Once you've got the, the satisfaction of knowing that it's going to get better or it's something that is chronic and so it's going to be there long term, then you can use a whole host of multimodal approaches to pain that are not just a one-to-one -one pain pill. Well, Dr. Baxter, thank you for that. And uh, again, there was a certain amount of, uh, let's say, softball. Uh, let, let me get you talking a little bit more about that. And then, uh, to be honest, as a not a pain care expert, you know, the issue 
of on my side uh, you know the difference between injury based pain and other forms of pain that may be more chronic or coming from other uh, things you know we don't necessarily tease them apart always and i think that you know the explanation there and just this understanding of this larger world and also the uh, one you know solution for one type of pain is really i think helpful for uh, our listeners and certainly for me uh, myself so i think that that is a great point uh, for us to pause on thank you so much dr baxter and hold on everyone we will be back in just a couple of moments No matter where you are along your journey, IDF wants to help you manage living with primary immunodeficiency, or PI. As a community-empowered organization, IDF can provide you with support, education, and resources to help you cope with a wide variety of issues related to PI, including physical and mental health, insurance, and relationships. For more information, please visit www.primaryimmune.org. And welcome back. Today I'm talking with Dr. Amy Baxter about managing pain from infusions to everyday life. Now, Dr. Baxter, uh, as I've mentioned, many people with primary immunodeficiency may suffer from acute uh, or chronic pain along with you know, their condition. So for our population who may be dealing with both the acute pain of, uh, of infusion injections or some sort of flare-up as well as the, uh, the chronic pain, what sort of advice can you give to our community who you know, may need some sort of, uh, you know, as you referred to, I think earlier, a pain management plan, something aside from maybe just being reactive uh, to pain? Uh, what would you say are some best practices for folks to think about as they deal with their, what is essentially decades long, you know, grappling with a chronic disease that may have elements of pain coming along with it. Sure. I love thinking about pain management as a pyramid. At the very top of the pyramid, you have medications that can fix the problem or mitigate the problem. So you've got, say, a Humira or you've got um, surgery or you've got medications or surgery. You've got something that can address the problem directly. That's a tiny, tiny tip. And then under that, you've got different kinds of supplements and other things that are adjuncts, but not just a one-to-one. -one. Under that, you've got physical solutions. So this is starting to get a lot bigger. The base of the pyramid is growing. And with physical solutions, I'm going to spend a little time here. So there are four different mechanoreceptors that feel different kinds of sensation, and all of them can help block pain. So there's one called the Messner corpuscles. Those are really light touch. Those are the ones that are going to tingle when you put menthol or icy hot on. There are deeper ones that are called Merkel discs. So when you have somebody sticking a thumb into a muscle that's tight or you've got a prolonged pressure from using one of those rollers on your leg or putting a, a neck roll on. So those are getting the Merkel discs. And then there are Raffini corpuscles that are the sensors for stretching. So if you do yoga, if you have massage, so those get stretched and they have some longer acting pain relief that can come along with it. 
This is also part of why exercise is something that's helpful. There's so many different benefits for pain from exercise, but one of them is that you are stretching those Raffini corpuscles that do block out pain. The one that is the most potent at immediately blocking pain is the one that the Buzzy and the Fibrocol device use. So it is a very high frequency perceptor called the Pacinian corpuscle, and what it's doing is it is hypersensitive to your position sense. So if you can imagine how fine the motor movements are if you're playing violin or if you are doing surgery or tying a knot, those kind of extremely fine motor movements are sensed by the Pacinian corpuscles. So using a very high frequency because they're such fine motions, that can stimulate the pain blocking. So this, this pyramid of pain, so you've got, you know, there's very few drugs or surgeries. There's a lot more supplements. There's way more physical ways to block pain. And then the base of the pyramid is mind-body. And so the mind-body approach to pain management is all of the distraction, all of the decreasing fear. It's the breathing. It's the meditating. It's having friends that you're spending time with. It's watching a movie or setting up a video game that you can play or having all of these different things. There's also even changing the meaning of pain, using your brain to go, okay, I have to have a surgery, but the surgery is going to let me have more mobility. It's going to have me more, uh, more freedom. Or once I get this surgery, I'm not going to have this problem. So the meaning can actually change and help you get through the pain. So all of those things together are a really important advance in your patients who, whether it's the, the dread before the pain of an infusion or whether it's chronic pain, really diving into all of these different options everywhere along the pyramid, there's always something else that hasn't been tried yet. So there's always hope. Well, with that pyramid and with the fact that, you know, as in our world, we, we acknowledge the fact that not everyone, for example, is an expert in primary immunodeficiency. There are specialists and there are generalists, and sometimes the generalists don't know quite as much as we would want to. Can you talk a little bit about the, the general knowledge of the medical community about dealing with these things and, uh, you know, your average general practitioner, your, uh, you know, maybe the doc that you go to for your physical versus what a pain management specialist and anything in between might be able to help you with? Yeah, I think it's a little different in pain versus primary immunodeficiency and immunologic specialists. And the reason is because most pain doctors are very acutely aware of opioids, the side effects of opioid medications, and what they need to do so that they don't get arrested for prescribing too many opioid medications. As opposed to an immunologist who's a PI expert, they are up on all of the latest literature on all of the aspects of PI and all of the aspects of everything from activities of daily living to different kinds of pumps and different kinds of therapies that are coming down the pathway. I think that's one of the things that's always fun when I talk to you is you really know what's up with all of the different possible ways to help people with PI. But pain management specialists oftentimes don't really know the things that people say help with pain. 
There's a study by AHQR, which is a government organization for quality and patient-centered care. They asked people what worked for pain. And the things that worked for pain were going to chiropractic, exercise, massage, yoga, devices, but not as many except for with migraines and with uh, one other thing said that medications help them. However, when you go to pain doctors and pain conferences, about two thirds of the lectures are about medications and the other third are about side effects. So I don't think that pain specialists necessarily are going to be the ones that I would recommend going to. There's a wonderful woman named Melissa for fibromyalgia. Um, she's got a website and she really talks about all the aspects of pain management that are, are de rigueur in other countries. In the UK, you couldn't start being a pain specialist without really being an expert on the biopsychosocial aspects. But in this country, we have moved away from understanding sleep, understanding depression, understanding anxiety, and understanding the way that meditation and mind-body work with pain. And instead, it's really just one problem, one solution, and the solutions are usually medications. So if I were wondering, if I think that yoga, nutrition, sleep, and understanding the bottom of that pyramid, um, that's where I would go for pain management. No, and thank you for uh, going back to that. And, and I'll admit some bias there uh, in terms of you know my my natural inclination as a uh, someone who's been a part of the rare and chronic disease uh, universe and expecting to have these conversations about one problem, maybe two solutions, uh, but something like that, which is really about okay, well the experts in this are going to tell me how to uh, to get to that point, which may be to be pain-free, more comfortable with where I am, et cetera, et cetera. So no, thank you for maybe steering that a little bit because that is, I think, enormously useful uh, for members of our community who are are used to approaching medicine, frankly, in a certain way. Or just to be honest, at least I am, if nothing else. <laughs> well, I, I really think that pain management is a great phrase because it's not pain elimination. It's management. And so there's a certain degree of pain that comes with being alive that, that you just manage. And it's, so it's understanding how to cope with, manage, and prioritize pain rather than feeling like you were promised a body that's never going to hurt. No, and I think that that is a, an incredibly important distinction. And I might argue, especially, um, you know, for for parents who are dealing with children, you know, who, again, we want to, we want to eliminate, we want to manage, we want to, uh, you know, we want them to not feel bad. And again, the, the realities and the issues that may face someone with a rare chronic disease or having to get needle sticks, um, you know, is a challenge. So let me use that mention of needle sticks to talk about something, of course, that is uh, of interest to a large percentage of our population. You know, and I've mentioned this once or twice towards the top. A lot of us have to get injections, whether it's immunoglobulin or whether it's enzyme replacement therapy. Um, you know, or hopefully everyone is getting their COVID vaccines right now. And we certainly do hear from some people who they themselves or their 
family members have concerns about taking any sort of a shot because of the pain. Can you talk a little bit about needle phobia, other aspects of pain uh, that connect to getting some sort of a shot? And uh, feel free to talk a little bit about uh, Buzzy and Vibracool and any of these other pieces that may uh, you know, specifically help with this, as well as the other elements that go into it, such as the distraction elements. Sure. One thing that I think is important for parents is that pain is a problem for your child that they should be part of solving. I heard the most wonderful thing from a woman named Regina Yoakum. She had juvenile arthritis and was wheelchair bound when I met her in her 30s. She's a child life worker and she's the one who gave me the lovely ideas about the pain pyramid. One thing she said is that children are going to need to take control of their pain. And so when the child has a painful procedure that's coming up or something that's happening, the more the parent gives the child the agency and how they handle it, the more control the child feels and the less pain they're going to perceive. So once a child has had a few injections, letting the child be the person that says, you know, hey, what do you want to try for this set of injections? And so start with asking what they want to do. And then if they are too freaked out, then say, well, last time, what worked for you? So you give them a cue to try to remember the things that have made it better in the past. And if they still can't come up with something, then you suggest, well, I think that this and this and this helped you a lot. Would you like to try one of those or more than one? And so again, try to lead them to the place where they're the ones who are saying, yes, I want to use the TV show with the funny cat and I want to sit in that chair and I want my pillow and I want that popsicle. And so once they've made some of those decisions, they also are then going to be more involved for the next time when they can try something else or keep track of what they did. So making the child the external observer and making them the architect of their own comfort is something that's helpful in decreasing some of the anxiety and fear and dread. Likewise, even when you're an adult and you have to gear up for the fact that that tomorrow's infusion day or next week's infusion day, then it's two days from now that, okay, tomorrow's infusion day. And it's like, ugh, today's infusion day. If there are rituals that are created around it, um, having a bath, having good smelling candles, having a song that pumps you up, figuring out those things is something that gives power over pain. Now, the particular thing that we made that blocks that pachinian corpuscle is a very high frequency device called Buzzy and you place it upstream of the place where the injection is going. I was talking with a pump manufacturer yesterday who was saying, well, we have four different infusions that can be going at once. Typically, the, the most pain is right with the initial insertion and then initially when the infusion starts and then sometimes toward the end of the infusion when the volume is building up and stretching the receptors that are in the area. So what we recommend then is having the buzzy, which has a little dot at the bottom of it where the, the business end of the B would be, and putting that as close as possible to the source of pain. So by doing that, the motor that's giving out this vibration frequency is as close as possible. So it's going to help desensitize that first initial rush of medication, and then it's going to be helpful in 
massaging in on a very micro level the medication so it doesn't cause the, the lumping up in the volume distribution. So it can be moved around as needed. The moving around part is actually really important because it gives the patient control back to that thing that when the patient knows that they can have some control and they've got something that can make it better, decreases the fear. The other thing that we didn't realize when we started, I thought that it was going to be fine to just block out pain. So using Buzzy on needle procedures blocks out 70 to 80% of the pain. Turns out the more fearful children were or the more anxious they were, the less good that did. It wasn't enough to just block pain. You also have to address the fear of what's happening. So this is where even if you've got fantastic pain relief, you've everybody's seen a kid who screams bloody murder when you take the alcohol swab and start wiping them. That doesn't hurt, but you're worried and you're afraid. And so it just bubbles up to the top and is interpreted as, as pain, even though it's not. So all of these things to decrease dread are going to help decrease pain. So we invented distraction cards to go along with the buzzy so that there's something to concentrate on, a problem to solve. It has to be an easy problem. It helps if it's a visual problem. What I tell adults to do is to find a sentence that's written across the room and count how many of the letters have holes in them. So I'm looking at my name, Amy Baxter. I see one A, B, well, the B is capital. It's got two holes. I don't know if that counts. A, R. All right. So just the act of trying to do that is difficult enough that it's distracting for a fast, painful procedure. So yeah, there's buzzy, but it, it's also about controlling the situation, and it's also about having something cognitive to turn your mind to if the pain gets to a place where it's too intense. So Dr. Baxter, let me just clarify here. In terms of a uh, a patient, especially a child, you know, who is being involved in this, do you mean that they should have control over the pain management, or can you give us a little bit more about those aspects? Sure. So I'm glad you asked because it's a little complicated. You don't want to give the child the impression that they're responsible for everything because they know they're the child and they know that's wrong. So that's going to make them anxious. You also don't want to give them fake control. So saying things like, are you ready to go get your x-ray now? That implies that if they say, why well, no, I'd prefer not to have an x-ray, that that's going to happen, which it's not. So the important things are that they are in control of their body and they can control their pain. So give the child real control over things that are within their control. They don't get to decide if they want to go to the bathroom. It's time to go now. We're getting your infusion. But they do get to decide, do you want to sit on the pink chair or the blue chair? Do you want to have this pillow or that pillow? And the idea of letting them try to generate the things that they think will give themselves comfort will reinforce the idea that they have some power and control over how they experience their health care and how they make their bodies feel. You don't give them control over doing or not doing, but the specific things that will comfort them, let them come up with those ideas and help them come to the place where they're able to do those ideas and to be powerful for themselves. Well, and thank you for all that, um, because what I heard throughout that, and of course throughout our conversation here, are a few threads uh, of what I would consider 
dovetailing with what one of our general themes uh, at IDF is, is empowerment, uh, empowerment of the patient uh, or the person who is dealing with, you know, the, the medical situation, be it their illness, uh, you know, be it a, a momentary uh, issue such as a needle stick or be it chronic pain. And again, from uh, the children, making sure that they are active participants in how it is they want to to approach this issue, to uh, all these other pieces of, you know, looking at the pyramid, uh, as you've said, uh, no, I think that this is this is going to be new information, frankly, for a lot of uh, members of our community. And so, uh, Dr. Baxter, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you for uh, going into territory that uh, we don't necessarily cover or that as uh, the uh, those who care for our community don't necessarily go too deeply into, but of course, you know, is um, is part of all of our worlds. So I uh, appreciate the time today. Thank you so much for your uh, your time and your expertise and for being a friend to our community. Anytime. And it is just such a delight to be able to have such broad ranging conversations with you. I really enjoy the way your mind works. Well, thank you. And uh, many thanks to all of our listeners here today. We hope that you'll join us for more podcast episodes like this one in the future as we explore the topics that mean the most to you. Until then, all of us here at IDF want to wish you good health and strength. And remember, you are never alone. There's always people who want to help. We all just have to find each other. This podcast is a service of the Immune Deficiency Foundation. If you like our show and want to learn more, please subscribe to this podcast so future episodes will be sent to your device automatically. To learn more about primary immunodeficiency and the PI community, please visit the IDF website at www.primaryimmune.org. And if you have a question you would like answered, email us at idf at primaryimmune.org. Thanks for tuning in.